Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Sahel Khanna, co-host of our series, C. difficile, Preparing the Field for Change. This series consists of six podcast episodes for all clinicians from gastroenterology, infectious diseases, hospital medicine, geriatric medicine, primary care, and from academic and community-based settings. We'll explore how to take a patient-centered approach to treatment, diagnosis, explore emerging treatment options, and discuss best practices for transitions of care. With me is my co-host, Dr. Paul Feuerstadt. Hi, everybody. I'm Paul Feuerstadt. Welcome. In today's episode, we're going to discuss FMT and new microbiome-based therapies. We're joined by our guest, Dr. Jessica Allegretti. Dr. Allegretti is the medical director for the Crohn's and Colitis Center at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, where she also runs their fecal microbiota transplantation program and is an international expert in this field. Her research is on intestinal microbiome, bile acids, and most importantly, she's authored a prestigious book, The Six Ds of Fecal Microbiota Transplantation. Jessica, welcome. You're making me laugh, Sahil, but thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Jessica. And it's always fun to have these conversations with you and Paul. It almost feels like a day at the breakfast. <laughs> Absolutely. 100%. So, Jessica, why is restoring the gut microbiome important for C. difficile? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we think about C. difficile as it's caused by a derangement in the microbiome. We know that over millennia, we have essentially evolved to have what is essentially called colonization resistance in the gut. You know, we have protective microorganisms that essentially keep C. diff at bay, if we think about it broadly. And when you take, let's say, your clindamycin for your tooth abscess and you kill off some of those protective organisms, you're essentially left vulnerable. And C. diff, even if it's around, you know, it's very small quantities, can really take over and start to, the spores can germinate, release toxin, and it's the toxin that makes you sick, not the bacteria itself. And so when we think about treating with multiple rounds of antibiotics, you're essentially continuing to ablate that gut microbiome that is essentially there to protect you. And so you're really left without the defenses to overcome this illness. And so it makes perfect sense to me that one of the ways to really get rid of this infection is to essentially restore that healthy ecology in your gut and restore, you know, microbiome restoration has essentially evolved to do such that. You know, I think it's, Jessica, you brought up so many really important points there. It's, you know, essential that we all understand that the antimicrobials that we that we treat with really kind of target that vegetative phase, the phase that causes the symptoms with those spores kind of hang out in our gut. And without further intervention, of course, those spores are susceptible to reforming into the vegetative phase because we have deficiencies that you outlined. And without further intervention, the microbiota has to regrow on its own. And certainly natural processes can can do that, but sometimes restoration can do that more expeditiously and more effectively. And, and we can do that in a much more expedited manner with, with fecal microbiota transplantation. So in your world, when does microbiome restoration fit into the management of C. difficile infection? So 
I am still operating under the policy of enforcement discretion per the FDA for sort of traditional, and I'm putting this in air quotes, traditional FMT. And so what that means to me is the sort of standard recurrent C-diff population, which is three or more confirmed episodes. There are some important caveats to that. You know, technically under the policy, it's patients with C-diff not responding to standard of care antibiotics. So in theory, that does include, say, patients with fulminant disease, even if it is their first episode. But my typical outpatient population is three or more confirmed episodes. And again, as of right now, we're using FMT to prevent a subsequent recurrence. It's actually not a treatment. You are still treating with antibiotics, and then you are preventing that subsequent recurrence, as I think Paul just beautifully outlined, because those spores are still around, you're at risk to prevent that subsequent recurrence. So you have your treatment plan and your prevention strategy, and that's where I'm using FMT still currently. Thanks, Jessica. I think that aligns with a lot of our practices You've been doing this for quite a lot of time, maybe going on to a decade. What's the history of FMT? Why did this even come to fruition in medical practice? Yeah, this is certainly not a new concept. Even when I started really doing this regularly back in 2012, it wasn't a new concept then either. You know, this dates back to ancient Chinese medicine. I mean, that this practice has been around for a while. The first modern day sort of report of this is from 1958, a surgical journal reported using fecal enemas to treat what was then pseudomembranous enterocolitis as a C. difficile had not been identified yet. And then we really start to see over the next several years, small reports, case reports, case series. When I did my very first talk on FMT, it was when I was a senior resident. There was no randomized controlled trials. There was literally just a few case series here. And and I actually, I still have the deck. I mean, I got laughed out by my colleagues because this was really thought to be funny, you know, pseudoscience. And, you know, really there was so much work still to be done, but it, it had been out there. And so we know that the first randomized controlled trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2013. And that's really around the time things are starting to take off. And also when the FDA enacts their policy of enforcement discretion around 2013. And so I think the field has been tremendously escalating since around 2012, 2013. But this is certainly not a new concept. I think the idea of microbiome restoration has been around and FMT has found to be the, to date anyway, the most effective way to do that. You know, Jessica, you've been really part of that process and part of that evolution, an integral part of it, proceeding from Obviously, the first New England Journal of Medicine paper, but moving forward, you've really had your fingerprints over the last decade's data and and allowing to escalate this. And I think patients really benefit from that. So thank you for all that. You had outlined earlier where in your treatment algorithm fecal microbiota transplantation fits under enforcement discretion. How do you prepare a patient for fecal microbiota transplantation? What do you talk to them about? And what is your process? We know that they need antimicrobials, and this is an add-on therapy, but what are your thoughts around this? Yeah, I was going to say, how do I prepare them emotionally, mentally, or physically? You know, I think those are all all of the above. It's funny, you know, when I started doing this, there was a little bit more of a lengthy discussion, you know, because there was sort of this question around, what is this? This is, is this gross? Is this safe? I think the conversations are very different that I have in 2023 than I had in 2012. You know, patients want this. They are coming to us for this. And so the conversations, certainly the tenor is different. So I always discuss with patients. Right now, I do offer two preparations. Well, I should say my first conversation is going through their medical history. How many episodes have they had? Have they actually responded to antibiotics? Because again, until recently, traditional FMT was not FDA approved. So you have to 
confirm that you're actually doing this for the appropriate indication under enforcement discretion. We go through, you know, what they've tried, what they've failed. Once we confirm that this is an appropriate indication, I then go through a little C. diff primer with patients. I explain to them colonization resistance, the spore form, the vegetative form, why we're actually doing this therapy, why microbiome restoration is important. And then I talk through the modalities. So right now I still have the ability to offer both oral preparations as well as colonoscopically administered preparations. And so we talk through the pros and cons of those. I share the data with the patients, efficacy rates, preparation versus not. And we discuss, you know, if the patient has any personal preferences, any issues swallowing pills, for example, we go through a lot of those to confirm which might be the best modality for that patient. And I can tell you, it's never clear cut. I think patients have preferences in either direction. And I, you know, I'm always surprised. And so once we make that decision, we make a plan, you know, when are we actually going to do this? We'll have them either come back to the office or have them schedule an endoscopy. I always do some screening blood work ahead of time. So we do do some safety labs ahead of time. And then we go through the consent form. So I do consent patients separately for the FMT, even if I am doing this via colonoscopy, the colonoscopy itself is a separate consent form. We go through all the potential risks and benefits, which now includes things like COVID and monkeypox. All of those things are now included into our consent forms, emerging pathogens, et cetera. I'm um, gonna make sure the patient's questions are all fully answered. We also talk through billing. I think this is something that always comes up. Am I going to pay, get paid, you know, build for this? What is the deal? And I think depending on where you're practicing, the answer or that conversation may be different. In my practice, we are still purchasing the material on the patient's behalf. So I will tell them there will be a bill for, say, the clinic visit or for the colonoscopy, but for the material itself, the capsules or the liquid preparation, there will be no bill generated. We pay for that and, and eat that cost, essentially. So these are all the things we discuss in the prep. And then I sort of outline the schedule for them. I say, okay, this is when you're going to stop your antibiotic. This is when you're going to take your bowel prep. This is when you're going to have the FMT. This is when we're going to call you to follow up. And then you're going to see me in clinic in eight weeks. So I still see all my patients between four and eight weeks after usually around week eight, we do basically a follow-up, see how they're doing clinically. And then I do a follow-up set of safety labs as well at that point. That's just been my practice. And so that's generally what I try to do in that initial consultation. Such a great overview of the six Ds of fecal transplantation. Thank you, Jessica. You're so welcome. <laughs> next question. I'm so glad I'm asking you the next question because you and Monica Fisher published the most data on this. Is there a role for FMT in severe or fulminant C. difficile? Yeah, absolutely. So this is really a space that is continuing to evolve. You know, as I mentioned, under that policy of enforcement discretion, it's described as patients not responding to standard therapy. And so these fulminant patients who are really septic with, with C. diff, really doing poorly and either going to end up with a colectomy or unfortunately die from this infection, FMT absolutely can be life-saving in this situation. And so, as you pointed out, Monica Fisher really did pioneer this sequential FMT protocol that we have certainly adopted at the Brigham, as well as many other institutions have as well. And so this is really different than that standard outpatient recurrent population, because basically these patients are fulminant. They have end organ damage. They're usually hypotensive on pressors. What we will do is we will start those patients on maximum medical therapy per the C. diff guidelines, which is oral rectal vanco and IV metronidazole. Usually you give them about 72 hours to see if they'll cool off. If they don't, we'll go to the bedside, we'll do a gentle flexible sigmoidoscopy and actually look for pseudomembranes. Sometimes it's quite obvious that the patient is there with 
with fulminant C. diff, oftentimes, especially if you're in a big tertiary care hospital like mine, it sometimes isn't super clear. And so actually going in, looking for pseudomembranes can help you say, okay, this is really the cause of this patient's sepsis. If the patient doesn't have pseudomembranes, it's probably not the C. diff that's causing that patient's sepsis and you want to make sure you're not missing something else. Either way, though, you would do the FMT. If there were pseudomembranes, you would restart the patient on antibiotics you might be thinking, well, that seems counterintuitive. Why would you do that? We know that you can actually, basically by rebuilding the microbial matrix, essentially, you actually have better response of the antibiotics. So they're sort of working symbiotically. And also these patients are so toxemic, they're unlikely to respond to a single FMT. So you'd likely need multiple. So we keep them on antibiotics to protect. And then you basically repeat this every three to five days until the patient is better. And in Monica's largest case series, she yielded about a 91% success rate at curing these patients, getting them out of the hospital. They didn't need a colectomy. They were able to go home intact. And so this can really be life-saving. I mean, when you've done it for the first time and you see it work, I mean, it's truly one of the most miraculous things I've ever done in medicine. I mean, you see the pressors come off, you see that white count coming down. It's really quite incredible. I am happy to say that this doesn't come up that often for me anymore. I think we're getting better at identifying these patients and treating them earlier. It still does come up and we still do offer it. And I think where some of the newer therapies and rectal administration, when we'll talk about it, I think this is a potentially a great place to utilize some of that. But yes, we are certainly still offering it. Well, thank you. And, and that's really a kind of an essential consideration for practitioners in general, as, as we'll talk about in a little bit. FDA potential approval for one product and FDA approval for another has rolled out opportunity for more providers to really use this. I, I think that all of us think about the safety of this. And obviously, if you're thinking about using this in a fulminant population, safety really matters. I mean, it always matters, but it matters even more in that population. Our mantra, of course, is first do no harm. So what do you think are the wrinkles in the safety aspects with regards to fecal microbiota transplantation. Overall or with fulminant patients specifically? I think overall. I mean, fulminant patients is a narrow population, and you provided a wonderful overview of that. But I think really what we're focusing on is the general population of fecal microbiota transplantation and safety considerations in that realm. Absolutely. I think, you know, the question around safety with this therapy has always been a question since the very beginning. What are we potentially putting patients at risk for? And, you know, there was initial concern around, of course, infection transmission, allergic reactions. I think as the years went on, we started to get more concerned about long-term consequences. Are we potentially putting the recipient at risk for a microbiome-associated disease that the donor is predisposed for by transferring over those phenotypes? And so that's really why the NIH and the AGA sponsored the National Registry, and we're continuing to collect long-term data. But then I think it sort of, sort of circled all the way back again to infection transmission. And I think up until 2019, there really had been no major reports from screened material. Certainly, there were many reports of unscreened material leading to infections, but from screened material, we really hadn't seen much. And then in the summer of 2019, we saw the reports published in the New England Journal and from the FDA alert around two patients who unfortunately were affected with an ESBL infection from FMT, neither of which were done for C. diff. They were both done in the setting of clinical trials, very immunosuppressed patients. But I think this, again, really put a spotlight on FMT to say, wait, 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 what are we doing here? Is this safe? What don't we know? And I think there was a real 
then need for meticulous attention to donor screening. And the FDA did publish finally a list of sort of mandatory things that needed to be screened for, although it was uh, not an exhaustive list, but a, a minimum requirement. But I think we've continued to scrutinize since. And then I think with the pandemic, the role of emerging pathogens and how we are able to be nimble and address those, I think remains a concern. You know, the pandemic happened. We found out that this virus was expressed in the stool. How do we screen for it? Then shortly thereafter, monkeypox. It was sort of like, what's next? And you have to be able to be ready to address that. So with sort of whole stool FMT in its current state, I mean, there certainly are challenges. That being said, I still wholeheartedly believe in the safety of this procedure. I've done thousands of these, you know, and I think Blood transfusion probably has more risk than FMT, in my personal opinion. And I think because of some of these, I think because of the lack of FDA approval for this therapy and sort of the complications around how it came to popularity and how it's been regulated, I think there have been some real highlights put on it. But I still think overall, this is an extremely safe and extremely effective procedure. Can it always be safer? Of course. And I think we're really working towards that end. And with some of the products that are coming to market, I think we're going to see even further improved safety profiles. Thanks, Jessica. That was excellent. A lot of providers have been reliant on stool banks over the years. So a loaded question, what about stool banks and what's their future in your opinion? Yeah, not that loaded anymore. I feel like the writing's sort of on the wall. So to speak extremely candidly, as I always do, you know, Open Biome is the largest stool bank in the country. They are still in existence. They have not closed their doors yet. Functionally, what happened over the pandemic with, again, with a lot of these emerging pathogens and the need for increased screening and increased regulation, I mean, just as many businesses in the pandemic, I mean, they really suffered financially and keeping their production line open just wasn't feasible anymore. So for all of 2020, we weren't receiving material from Open Biome essentially as validation for SARS-CoV-2 testing was, was underway. And I think many of us were then starting to figure out what are we going to do? Luckily, the Open Biome has partnered with the University of Minnesota. So University of Minnesota has been producing material this whole time. They have a fully functional lab that has been doing that for mainly internal use, but they are now partnering with the University of Minnesota who is producing material. And Open Biome is basically the distribution center now. So they are still shipping out material. So you can still get material through Open Biome. The ask is that you have a patient who needs it. You don't hoard material and stock up. You know, you sort of order on a one-to-one need basis because there is limited supply, certainly. I think, though, we all assumed that once there were FDA-approved products, the policy of enforcement discretion would be rescinded at some point and stool banks would essentially wind down. As of December, after we have the first approval, we do see a change to the policy of enforcement discretion from the FDA enforcing an IND requirement. So they didn't rescind it, but they did change it a little bit. Open Biome is still in compliance with this. So that's why their doors are still open. And I think they are committed to staying open until the policy is rescinded, which I think we all assume is coming. We just don't have a time horizon on that yet. And I think as we have more approved products and we're able to actually prescribe these agents, you know, then there may be less of a need anyway. And so we'll see a nice trend down with the FDA approved products trending up. Well, thank you. I completely agree with everything that you just said. It's really a time of transition, and that transition is over to some of these products that we've been alluding to already, but not actually, frankly, discussed. We originally met up in January of 2023, but are meeting now in August of 2023 to re-record this part of our conversation as products have changed their FDA approval status over the past few months. 
Would you mind walking us through the pipeline of products? Absolutely, Paul. Thank you so much for asking this important question. You know, so I think as the, this conversation has evolved over the last several months, this space has really taken off. So when we originally recorded in January, we had just had one FDA-approved product that was approved in the fall-winter of 2022, and that is Fecal Microbiota Live JSLM, which I'm going to call RBL for simplicity's sake. And that is a product that is a rectally administered product. I consider it an FMT-like product. You know, it is a whole-spectrum, full-consortium product. And again, it is indicated for the prevention of recurrent C. diff. More recently, in the spring of this past year, we also now have approved Fecal Microbiota Spores Live, BRPK, which I'll refer to as VOS for simplicity. And this is an oral product. This is a spore-based product. It's administered as four capsules on three consecutive days, also indicated for the prevention of recurrent C. diff. So, what we have now is a really deep armamentarium of preventative strategies. We think about traditional FMT, which we've all been using in this space for many years now. And I think believe in this, or at least I believe in the safety and efficacy of that product, but certainly there was room for improvement. And now we have two FDA approved products, which we can use and prescribe readily. I think what's interesting about this space now is where are we positioning these new FDA approved products? We don't necessarily have the same strict limitations on us that we had with traditional FMT, which again was not FDA approved and under this policy of enforcement discretion. So I think, again, this is an evolving discussion. And you and I have had, and Sahil, have had many discussions and we've written up articles now thinking about this. And, you know, I think there is certainly a population that you could and should consider using products like these earlier in the treatment paradigm, say first recurrence, because there is no restriction based on how these products are labeled. And so I think for a patient who's immunocompromised, has IBD, or where you really know that a subsequent recurrence could lead to significant morbidity or even mortality in a patient, I think considering using a product like one of these to prevent a subsequent recurrence is really incredible. It's incredible for physicians. It's incredible for patients that we have this now. And I think what's also very exciting about this space is it doesn't end here. There are other products that are under investigation right now, and we have the first synthetic, so not donor-derived product, which is in phase three investigation right now. And so again, I think this is going to be a really exciting time for those of us who take care of patients with C. diff. It's great for patients that we're going to have a lot of options. Yeah. So I think, again, the story doesn't end here. So I'm sure when we chat again in a year, we'll have even more to say. Thank you, Jessica. You've clearly outlined that the future is bright in the space of C. difficile with microbiome therapeutics and your passion is truly appreciated by everybody, including all of our patients. So thank you for doing what you do. Paul, final thoughts? I want to thank Jessica for being here. This has been a wonderful overview of everything microbiota and fecal microbiota transplantation. So thank you for that. And I thought this was a wonderful podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. I always love chatting with the two of you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode in our series on C. difficile, preparing the field for change. Special thanks to today's guest, Dr. Jessica Allegretti. For additional resources on C. difficile, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org. This series is supported by educational grants from Immune Therapeutics, Serious Therapeutics, and Ferring Pharmaceuticals. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope. 
an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.